The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us. I'm John Howard, and I'm joined by Tim Foster, my colleague. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Amy Chance, reporter, political reporter, editor, Capitol Bureau Chief, and God knows what else. Amy, thank you very much for joining us today. We wanted to talk about journalism. Surprise, surprise. That's great. Hi, John. Hi, Tim. When um, I'm trying to think, when when did you come to the, the, when did you start doing politics? I know you're a reporter, and then you did capital coverage, or excuse me, municipal coverage, city coverage for the Sacramento Bee. Uh, when did all that, when did that start? Well, the truth of the matter is that when I was in high school, I uh, was with a a regional occupations program uh, event that put me at a newspaper, uh, the Contra Costa Times, and my very first political event, they had a women's section back in the days, and they sent me uh, as to write something for the women's section about a Ford for President rally in downtown Walnut Creek. And I wrote an article about what people wore to go to a political rally. And I was fascinated by it because uh, it was all the elephants. There were hats and elephant earrings and elephant scarves and uh, lots of, lots of, You know, the Republicans are better at it, actually, than the Democrats. You know, the donkey just doesn't lend itself so much. And uh, but I had the best time doing that. I thought it was fascinating. It was the first political event I had ever covered. Uh, And so that's honestly the first thing that I ever wrote about politics was about that. And later, when I had after I'd gone to probably 40 uh, state Republican Party conventions over the course of my career, I was still interested in it. I still loved to go to the the vendor booths and look at what people were buying and what the bu- political button said. And and uh, people collect those, you know. Uh, Tim and I have had. Um, I have a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, it was Adam Gottlieb, right? He's got God, he's got buttons and banners, and so does Tim on his desk at the office. Yeah, uh, you know, going back election, there's some of them are really funny and clever and uh, and and pretty cool, you know. Um, my favorite button, my favorite button that I got years ago, I think at a Democratic convention, is menopausal women nostalgic for choice. <laughs> wow. Hey, that's a classic, right? That'll be worth money some, maybe right now. But uh, <laughs> uh, so you got kind of a real interest in politics just across the board. Then you wanted to cover it um, and actually do it as a reporter. So how did you get from Contra Costa to Sacramento? Well, I my first job, uh, what paid job, was at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram oh, in huh? Texas. I moved to Texas out of college. I didn't know a soul in Texas. And I was assigned to cover a city uh, called Mansfield, Texas, which at the time was a very small town south of Arlington. And I covered everything, you know, crime, school board, city council meetings and wrote stories about things like whether they were going to allow people to have hogs in their yard within the city limits, that kind of thing. So I got a real, really quickly an immersion in, in local government and the importance of local government. 
And I really enjoyed it and spent a lot of time then covering planning and zoning commission hearings and coming up uh, watching local government in action. And that's what I came to Sacramento to do was to cover Sacramento City Hall. And I did that for two years before I came over to the Capitol. I remember City Hall coverage uh, that you've done. And then I remember seeing your byline at the Capitol Bureau, which was a lot different, obviously, than um, than it is now. Numerically, it just seemed to me it had 300 people in it. I mean, for a while, the AP Bureau was right next door to you guys. And I remember going in there and talking to people and they would come in. One of the, one of the, Ted Zell would come into our office and clip the wire all the time. Real grouchy guy. He would come in, clip the wire and then disappear. Was, you guys were the hub. Yeah, the yeah. there you go. Yeah. You guys um, were the hub for the press corps. Uh, the long days pass. So, um, yeah. Uh, but what is it about political coverage that, that really, uh, attracted you? What is it about doing the politics and the power and the government? What what really got you going on that? Well, I think I like to challenge authority, <laughs> not to get too uh, uh, introspective about it. I think asking hard questions of people in power came very naturally to me. Uh, I, I did it pretty aggressively. Uh, and uh, enjoyed pointing, you know, you know, asking, asking tough questions of the people who were governors. I mean, I came over to the Capitol to cover the second of George Duke Majin. Uh, and I mostly covered in my reporting career, I mostly covered governors. I covered uh, several of them myself, and then was an editor oh. while we had reporters covering governors. And so that really was my first interest. And I I liked holding the people in charge accountable. Uh huh. And does, uh -huh. uh, is there a gender difference now, a gender e equation now that didn't exist? I think when you started, were there fewer women, more women, about the same? Um, women with more influence. There's certainly a lot more attention paid to gender equity issues than there was in the early '80s, is my memory of it. But well, I I hired a lot of women in the Capitol Bureau. Uh, I. I don't remember, honestly, I tell people that gender was not such a big issue. It was never an, an issue for me in advancement at the Sacramento Bee. Mm -hmm. And I was recruited into the Capitol Bureau by Bill Endicott, who was bureau chief at the time. Oh. And I, uh, I don't remember feeling particularly outnumbered, although I'm sure that I was. Becky LaValle was the first Capitol Bureau chief uh, in the Capitol, I think by record, who, who was chief as Capitol Bureau chief for UPI. Oh, and, wow. and, uh, so I didn't, I didn't really see myself as any kind of pioneer or that doing anything particularly unusual. I will say <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I'm probably the only, uh, reporter who ever asked a governor a question about pap smears at a <laughs> press conference. <laughs> Uh, because what was the answer? Do you remember the answer? Well, it was a question. It was a question about uh, funding of of uh, oh, clinics, uh, yeah. family planning clinics, and Majin was reluctant to to do that funding uh, because of the abortion issue. And so, what I was asking him was, what what about the other services they provide? Yeah, 
you know, it seemed to me um, more collegial then than now. I don't know how that affected coverage, if at all. But when I first got here, you, I remember being taken over to the governor's office and introduced to him by my bureau chief then. And the chief of staff to the governor then, this was when Jerry Brown was governor first time, chief of staff then uh, wanted to know everything about me, made notes on it. You could see he was looking, he was angling to persuade me to do stories later on. He wanted to have direct content, that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, there's a lot of eyeball to eyeball contact. And I don't see, I don't see it the same way now. We're so accustomed to email and texting and other things and the pandemic now and all kinds, you know, there, there seems to be less personal contact. Anyway, that's my personal view. Is that ring true with you at all or no? Well, I agree that, that the, um, the use of email has allowed uh, those we cover to really avoid tough questioning. Uh, everybody likes to just just write their script and send it back in an email as opposed to taking follow-up questions. Um, but I will tell you that at least during my, <laughs> my tenure, it was somewhat adversarial. I had an amazing experience last week, which is that um, uh, Pete Wilson appeared on a video uh, at my retirement party. And... Uh, I would have sworn that Pete Wilson hated me uh, because during the time that I was covering him, by the end, I they were requiring me to submit questions in writing. He wouldn't take any of my questions directly, um, and they were they were pretty tough with me. But uh, and so I would like I say I didn't I did not think um, he thought he was thought fondly of me, but he he gave a very nice message on my retirement video. And, you know, that's business, you know, that's, you know, business is business, you know, and so they get it. Uh, we were talking with George Skelton the other day and on his oral history, in fact, he said, uh, you know, he didn't care what the politicians thought about, about what he wrote about them. And they really didn't either. He used to have scotch every now and then with Pete Wilson, which kind of amazed me because he was always so, he was so adversarial against everybody he covered, you know. Right. Um, that's really, yeah, I think he wants to accuse me publicly of character assassination. <laughs> you know, so Amy, that actually is a question as a person who never worked, I've never been a working reporter in the Capitol. Uh, what's, can you talk a little bit about the difference between the governor and his communications person and his press people? I mean, I think wasn't Joe Redota the press person for Wilson? And I'm just wondering if, if them requiring you to submit uh written questions maybe was, was that coming from the governor, from his press secretary, from his communications person? What's, you know, how do you think that all that works? And well, it's all, all of the blurred. details are probably blurred in my memory now, but I, but I will tell you, it was Dan Schnur that I worked with most closely when uh, Wilson was governor. Uh, he was the, the uh, communications director for part of that time. And, uh, you know, you just start to get a feel as a reporter in every story, whether it's coming from the staff or the governor. I mean, that's one of the things that I really talk to reporters about now is to have a sense of the sophistication level and the knowledge of the staff person that you're dealing with and to know when they know the answers to what you're asking about or when they don't know and they're afraid to go ask. And so each situation is different but you do 
it's very important to to try to ultimately get to your principal and and the governor and and what that governor is bringing to the party and what what they're concerned about or what they're trying to not answer or answer or accomplish or not accomplish. Is there any governor you had more fun covering than another? Did you enjoy one more than the other? Not, I don't mean, you know, politics or personally anything like that, but just as far as writing about and getting stories on and tracking them down, that kind of stuff. Well, Jerry Brown was interesting. I have to say there was a lot about Jerry Brown that was, was really interesting and, and, uh, uh, he was very, you know, in some ways a, a difficult personality, but he's he's the only governor who asked, ever asked me what my father did for a living or any kind of personal <laughs> question about me. Um, uh, usually they had no interest in you whatsoever. Uh, Why would he want so to know what, I what your dad did? For, I mean, that's so Jerry Brown, you know. Why right. Was trying to figure something out. I don't know. And what uh, did your dad do for a living? He was a pharmaceutical salesman. Ah, uh, it was the drugs. Brown was in. Yeah, drugs. yeah, it was the drugs, and uh, so I enjoyed him. But he was a difficult governor to cover in his second term. I did not cover him in his first term, and uh, he had learned so much about uh, holding the press at arm's length. Yeah. Uh, by the time he got to the Capitol the second time, that he did a very good job of pushing anything controversial down to the agencies and the spokespeople in the agencies. And he was he was really hard to get your arms around. Um, Schwarzenegger actually was probably more accessible because he liked being in the limelight. He liked talking to people. Uh, and uh, I know there was a lot of complaining when Schwarzenegger was governor about access, but I think that's just because more people wanted access <laughs> who had not covered the Capitol regularly uh, and didn't like it that they weren't getting an interview with Schwartz all times. But for, for us, he was very accessible um, during the time he was governor. The Hollywood piece with, with uh, Schwarzenegger was interesting, too, because I noticed Hollywood reporters or entertainment reporters had more access to him just by virtue of their jobs and the political people did here that later I think even doubt but uh he was immensely popular going in and he was charismatic and he had these huge news conferences and he was a hoop to cover I'm not sure what at the end of the day what all happened but uh while it while it lasted he was he was quite a roller coaster ride you know I yeah thought, yeah and a testament to the ultimate power of the CTA <laughs> yes a total what, you, what was your favorite? Do you have a favorite story or one you like most of all that you you know worked on that you're proud of, or uh, or or on the opposite side, one you really screwed up, you wish you'd never seen it before again, never want to watch it? Well, I can think of many. Um, <laughs> I mean, I will tell you that because it relates to to things going on these days, that it, it's just an interesting thing to note that. Um, we were covering the anti-vaccine movement uh, pretty aggressively and um, carefully before the pandemic and how active it was at the Capitol. And um, one of the most, uh, you know, just one of the things that I'll never forget is I was working in the bureau one afternoon, the legislature was in session and suddenly there was the kerfluffle in the Senate and um, 
And we were trying to figure out what was going on. And Hannah Wiley, who was our reporter there, called into the bureau and uh, somebody had thrown something onto the floor of the Senate from the balcony, uh, one of the um, anti-vaccine protesters. And Hannah I said, what's going on? And she goes, Amy, it's period blood. And it had fallen on Steve Glazer, who had to take a shower. It was like a very oh, um, expensive thing to clean up in the Senate. But it, but for me, it's going to stick in my mind that I think everybody is going to associate the, the fervor of that movement with the pandemic and that it existed before then. <clears throat> and there was a lot of fear around vaccines um, even then. You know yeah. what I think the irony there, I'm I'm not 100% sure, but I'm 99% sure. I think that protester claimed that it had nothing to do with vaccines and she was an anti-abortion activist. So yeah. it just happened to be that was the big dramatic moment. Uh, but really, she the was- The day, yeah. Yeah, she was on the wrong, she was basically on the wrong page. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So she made her mark, I will say that. Yep. You know, you know, you had uh, you'd covered the Capitol as a reporter and then you, you know, ran the Capitol Bureau for the B. Can you talk about the differences and maybe what you learned as a reporter that you brought with you as an editor and then what you might have uh, told your your reporters from your from your experiences? Like how how did that inform your experience there? Well, I would say that when I was a political reporter, I did a lot of writing that was process. And I did a lot about politics that was, you know, inside baseball, you know, all the little details about who was so-and-so's campaign manager and how did they decide what their campaign slogan was, what mistakes made in their campaign. And uh, with the idea that it would tell you ultimately something, the person who was running. Uh, but once we had analytics, I think the, the big difference for me was when we had analytics and we could see what people were reading. And I started to realize that the things I had written about were not the things that people were really interested in. <laughs> that uh, over time, I, I learned that the analytics could be a way to really point us to what the people of California really want to know about what's happening in the Capitol. And I know people dismiss analytics in the media as a form, you know, well, they're just writing clickbait. Uh, but that's not what I was my experience at all. Uh, in Sacramento, we would have stories about the state budget, for example. Number one year, we got a budget deal, and I couldn't believe how many people read that budget story. And, it and the, the lesson was that it was something that was very much to the livelihoods and income of so many people who, who live in the Sacramento area and who really care about state funding. And, and it started to dawn on me that we could really write about things happening in a capital and sort of, sort of serve as a translation service for people. And rather than writing about a committee passing a bill, we could write headlines that very specifically said, your taxes will go up under this proposal or your pension will change under this proposal. And to really start to write for people in a way that they could understand the importance of state government in their lives. Uh, and so 
ultimately, I mean, I, I used to say, I say this a lot, uh, reporters is that political reporters coming up is that I wrote so many stories about things politicians say. And, and in the end, I don't think anybody cares uh, what politicians say. They care what politicians are doing to them or for them. And that that's what we need to be writing about and, and framing it in that way. And when you do that, readership follows. Do you think the social media uh, has impacted that at all? I mean, it's sort of social, you know, the, like, I guess uh, when the Internet came, I remember seeing a Dan Gilmore book, the Internet, when it started really taking off and blogs started up, this was the age of the citizen reporter. It was being ushered in as, well, now you don't have to have your news filtered through a TV station or radio or, you know, a paper. You can actually get to people yourself and write it up yourself. But the result of that, you know, magnified thousands and thousands of times has seemed to have been that there's this blurring of the lines between commentary and opinion and fulminating and advocacy and news. Not at the papers. They still very much care about this. But out there in the atmosphere is all this blurring and all this hyperbole that's out there that just kind of gets in the way of a lot of things, I think. I mean, that's one modern aspect I see of it now. Yeah. I don't know. Well, you know, not everybody agrees with me, but I was pretty much a stickler for uh, journalists not expressing personal opinions yeah. about much of anything on social media uh, and being very careful in the use of social media, uh, treating it and just as, as you would, I mean, there's there's a pressure on reporters now to build their own personal brand. Uh, and uh, you can do that with humor, and which is great, and opinion, which in my view uh, undermines your credibility as a journalist. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so I, you know, I was, you might, some would call me old fashioned about that, but um, I stuck to that pretty determinedly. Yeah. You know, this is far beyond either one of your memories or mine, but I'm a history nut and I love going back and reading, you know, first print accounts. So in other words, going back to newspapers from 100 years ago or, uh, you know, books that reprint, that sort of stuff. And it's, it's interesting to me reading the newspapers of 120 years ago, you know, around the turn of the, of the 19th to the 20th century. And what I think of as a newspaper that I grew up with when I was a kid in the seventies was a very, not sterile, but I mean, a very, as far as I could tell, nonpartisan place to be. And you would really get news and you would not get that much opinion or it would be very carefully marked as opinion. Boy, in 1900, that was not the case. No, and, it was very opinionated. Yeah. It was very opinionated. And I wonder yeah. if we're sort of revisiting that now. And partly I think it's because there were so many, I mean, God, what were there like 20 newspapers in New York city back, you know, then. And so I wonder if now with so many different uh, media brands out there that are not doing print, I wonder if we're kind of coming back to that time. And again, I know neither one of you lived in 1900, but are familiar with the history of, of media. And it sure seems familiar to me from reading those types of, of media uh, products from way back when. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a natural human uh, tendency to want to read things that you agree with 
uh, and hear things that you already agree with. And so I think people do tend to gravitate toward media that re reinforces their own views uh, and, and, and that that fuels that uh, tendency. Uh, I, can't, um, I just was of the generation that we didn't do that. <laughs> and so I uh, tried to yeah. stick very carefully to factual things, challenging everybody, uh, looking at things from a, uh, a nonpartisan point of view uh, as much as possible. There's a really a good exercise in that, I would say, is I'm reading right now a book by Deborah Burks, who uh, was brought in to chair Trump's coronavirus task. Uh, and I really recommend it to anybody. It is really an exercise in watching somebody try to be almost journalistic in their approach uh, to public health and look beyond uh, the partisan politics to the underlying truth and facts. And it is a it is really a great book. I really recommend it to anybody, whether you agree with her or not. You can you can watch that that attempt to hold in your mind that party politics is not everything and there is something beyond that mm -hmm. that is truth. And now just for those of us who don't know, was uh, Deborah Burks a Republican or a Democrat or she she worked for both, admit, you know, both um, uh, pr presidents of both parties over the years. I don't know if she's a registered Republican or not. It's interesting to see, and I know we both have friends that have done this, who have gone from doing reporting to go working for the government in various ways, you know, communication directors or advisors or something. And traditionally, it was uncomfortable. Often, but I mean, they got adjusted, but there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of acclimating to do. It was difficult sometimes to make that leap, but now it seems to be less difficult than it was before. I think the for whatever reason, um, it seems to be something you can do now. For journalists, can go more easily into communications or or PR or whatever than they could before. It seemed to me before it was a big it was a big deal to go from one to the other, but now. Doesn't seem to be that big a deal. Do you have any thought about that? Well, I think as jobs in journalism have become more scarce, uh, there was more of an understanding uh, and fewer opportunities for people to stay in journalism, right? And just a more more of an understanding that people needed to make a living. Yeah. Um, Amy, do you have um, this is the last question? So, what yeah. are you going to do now? Basically, uh, are you going to do a lot of traveling or do absolutely nothing and lay around like a slug? Or are you going to go out and have fun? You know. Go to the beach, you know. Go to the house. I I am a new grandparent. Oh wow, cool! Uh, so my granddaughter is eight weeks old, and I just took my first trip to visit her, and I plan many more this year. She lives in Portland, and wow. I'm going to do some uh, mentoring. Uh, I signed up to be a mentor with Report for America, uh, where you work with. Uh, uh, younger journalists who are coming into a market uh, that they may not be familiar with and helping them get acclimated and, and providing some support for them. So that is the first uh, sort of, it's volunteer, but it's the first work-related kind of thing that I will do. I'm also a gardener and a baseball fan, and uh, I'm taking up watercolors, and I'm 
doing lots of reading. Yeah, cool. Uh, I'm one of those people where the problem will be that I will agree to too many things and be yeah. too busy in retirement as, as opposed to being too bored and sloth-like. So, I've had friends who retired, one in particular who retired, uh, he said he didn't, he didn't have time to do half the projects that he had planned. He was working on construction for one of his daughters in her house. He was in gardening. He was in this big, you know, and he would get called in as a consultant on election nights to, to offer advice on how to call rate. He, he said he was busier than he'd ever been. You know, I bet you find the same thing. You know? I'm sure of it. I'm absolutely sure of it. I well, just grew my first, first black tomato. <laughs> well, and you'll be fielding all those panicked calls from B reporters saying, what do I do now? <laughs> I think they're going to do just fine. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to do just fine. God, the B was everywhere. You know, it was the Superior California. I still remember that edition. And Superior California was all over the North State. You couldn't go from Likely to Alturas, to Susanville, to Reno. It was in Reno, I think, you know. You could get it everywhere. It was just like, God, I thought when I first got to Sacramento, I thought the bee must be planted and printed in 15 different cities. <laughs> I'd never seen a paper with that much spread, you know. It's just right? amazing how You know what the happen. funny thing is, is that we have that much spread now uh, digitally. Uh, uh -huh. if, we are, if we are doing our search engine optimization yeah. right, on our stories, people find those stories all over the country, all over California. Uh, a lot of the audience for our capital coverage comes from out of market. Wow. Uh, in Southern California, where we never were as a print entity. It's really interesting what the, the degree of geographic reach you get on the internet these days. Well, and you know, actually that brings up, a, I think of the single most common comment I see on Twitter about the bee is logging in. That there seems to be this never ending problem with people who have subscriptions logging in. I, I'm i not saying this has happened to me, but I'm saying that this has happened to me. Where I'm logging you in. You say it's phone. Amy's fault though, right? We say yeah. it's Amy's fault. Yeah, I, but, uh, but it is- Okay, I have an email address for you. <laughs> VIP? at sacb.com. Tell them about your problems so they can troubleshoot it for you. Excellent. Well, I know, but that's one of the things where you think, yeah, people from LA, they probably weren't going to see the Sacramento Bee print edition 20 years ago or, or not very often, but on the internet, that doesn't exist. You know, you could see it whether you live in Catalina Island or, you know, on K Street. So. Well, Amy Chance, thank you so much. Thanks for uh, taking the time to chat. We'll follow up, by the way, after uh, maybe the first planting to see how the gardening is going. I uh, can send pictures. And I have many baby pictures, John. So be careful. <laughs> yeah, what is it with you uh, senior editors and, and your offspring moving up to Oregon? I don't know what's up with that. But, yeah, it's pretty quiet. Cool. I've got my uh, oldest daughter lives in Rogue River. Oh, wow. Uh, and my uh, my youngest daughter lives in um, Santa Barbara. They're in the same company. They all work from home. You know, they work remotely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it's just kind of it. The whole works. That's another thing we didn't talk about really. But the whole work experience of people now is so much different than it was. I try to keep it the same a little bit. Come into the office a bit. And, you know come home, but most people don't even bother with that. You know, so I sat right here for two years covering Gavin Newsom. 
That is a right frightening here. thought. A frightening thought right there. At my dining room table. <laughs> Thank you, Amy Chance. Thank you so much for joining us. And now it's time for Tim Foster and me to talk about who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Tim, what do you think? I think it sure seems like George Gascon uh, did not have a great week this week. Yeah, he could have definitely had a bit better week. The opponents um, have qualified. They say, this is not officially verified, but they say they've gathered enough signatures to get the recall on the ballot. Uh, they say Kathy Cady, who is leading the, uh, the opposition, says that they've got about 566,000. In the last few days, they've collected several thousand more. They, their target is 650,000. They have until July 6 to do the deed and get the signatures in. According to her, it's the most signatures ever collected in Los Angeles for a recall. That I don't know. But where this all leads, I think it's not a good week for uh, Mr. Gascon, who I think uh, the odds makers are saying he will go uh, before the voters to see if he should be recalled. Yeah, I think he's definitely, well, definitely. It sure seems like he's going to be re, uh, put up for recall. We'll see whether he actually loses the recall. I mean, California right now is undergoing recall fever. We had Chesa Boudin was recalled uh, a couple of weeks ago. You had all those recalls of city council members up in what was it, Shasta County or uh, maybe the town of Shasta, North, Northern California. Uh-huh. And uh, then there's people trying to recall city council member Kitty Valenzuela here in Sacramento. Uh, and then, of course, there was the Newsom recall, which was actually probably the best thing that ever happened to him. <laughs> uh, yeah. Unlimited fundraising. And uh, and then basically, I think he almost was, re- you know, beat that recall almost two to one. So we're in the midst of recall fever. I don't know. You know, they'll be recalling the dog catcher and the, and the trash collector pretty soon. Yeah. But the weird thing about recalls is the dynamics of the election are different. Uh, we see elections obviously all the time, special elections, generals, primaries, but recall elections, once they hit the threshold of, of getting enough signatures to force the recall to appear on the ballot before voters, once they hit that threshold, it starts getting serious. That's, that's true with any recall election. It's particularly true with one like this. It's very high profile. So it's a major hurdle that's been overcome by, um, by the opponents of Gascon, whether they can carry that through the general is anybody's guess, but they're a lot closer today than they were at the beginning of the week. Well, and you know, earlier in the week before this news broke about this uh, potentially qualifying, I thought, and you and I just differed here, but I thought that uh, that uh, Caruso, the candidate for mayor in LA, had a pretty crappy week, and I thought he was a good candidate. Yeah. He disagreed, but I thought, you know, he spent, I think it was forty million dollars in that campaign. On election night, he was in first place. I think he was about five points ahead of Congresswoman Karen Bass, who's also running. Uh, he was in first place. She was in second place. And then there were other people in distant third and fourth. And looked pretty good for him. But as they've continued to count the votes that are coming in, which and they'll continue to come in for probably another week, yeah. uh, he is now in second place. So I, I think... I think when we spoke to uh, Gary South, he said that he had outspent her 10 to 1. And I just thought, you know, with the dynamics of a primary race versus the turnout in a general election, 
That does not seem like good news for him. It seemed like he needed to do really, really, really well here. If that's going to then translate into him doing well enough in November to win. And I, I don't know. You and I have, have agreed to disagree on this, but but what's your take? You don't you don't think it was that that bad for him, right? I just don't think. Uh, I think it would have been if he had not. If he does not show up clearly in the general in the run up, definitely he'd be in the same category as a uh, Jane Harmon or an Al Checky or Norton Simon, somebody who spends lots and lots of money, and at the end of the day, it doesn't work. It doesn't go so well. Effect goes very badly. Cox is another one, um, but he's going to be here in November, so. And that is what the ultimate, that's a reality right now. So the time to do the, uh, the worst week in California politics uh, for Caruso is going to be maybe right after the November election, depending on what the turnout is. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think the November election, we could easily have a worst week for either Caruso or for Karen Bass. Either one of them have a yeah. really strong potential for the worst week in California yeah. politics uh, come November. Yeah. But you know what we should do now is do what the wire service is called lay down copy. We should do a bad one. For Caruso, worst week for Karen Bass, and then you know, and then uh, take our pick when the time comes. I think I think the wire, I think the AP did one like that on Bob Hope. Figured he died, and of course he was as live as a little squirrel. And he called the office and said, "Hey, I'm not dead. What are you guys doing?" And that was kind of embarrassing. Well, this one maybe like maybe like that too. You know? Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I I I have to confess, I do not really understand Los Angeles city politics. Yeah. In any significant degree. I mean, I'm aware, I'm aware that LA exists and that they have a mayor. But beyond that, yeah. really, uh, and I do know that they have the what is it, the supervisors like the seven little kings, is it, or now it's seven little five queens, little kings, yeah. five little five little queens. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, I, I can't say that I have any particular deep understanding of this. But to me, it seems like if it wouldn't have been uh, wouldn't have been for District Attorney Gascon's. Uh, bad news this week. I would have I would have made an argument. You could have said the Caruso. Had a, I'm sure he was a little disappointed to see his margin dropping and dropping and dropping. And now he's below low care and I'm sure his advisors are taking a little bit of scorching right now. That's what we, we should have a little fixture, a little feature called who had the most disappointing week in California <laughs> politics. And we'll go right there. We'll go with them. You know, and you know, others you don't even know about. So, and know. it'll never that that will never ever ever be the political consultants because they still cash the check. It's like, oh, we lost. Well, I'm just going to cash this check right now. Yeah, totally true. Uh, Tim, that's it for me. Do you got anything to add? No, I think we're good. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Uh, we will talk to you soon, and thank you everybody for listening. And we will talk to you next time around. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.